So, what have I been on about? Well, it was the question I asked an episode or a few episodes ago about Bodhisattva vow, bodhicitta, and self-actualization. What do I mean? It's what I was just talking about. Are we able to balance um, working for the liberation of all sentient beings and our own enlightenment? We have to set them aside, compartmentalize them, because especially in this day and age, maybe that's what the Dharma ending age is about. It's actually when it becomes just too much noise for us to be able to self-actualize. Therefore, the Dharma can't be implemented. But neither here nor there. My new favorite expression. So, what am I talking about? And we'll get to it. So what I'm talking about is I was a, a true believer in the Bodhisattva vow, which is this. From the Avantamsaka, Samantabhadra uh, made these vows, right? Just as all previous gatas, the Buddhas, generated the mind of enlightenment and accomplished all the stages of the Bodhisattva training. So I, so will I, for the sake of all beings, generate the mind of enlightenment and accomplish all the stages of the Bodhisattva training, right? The more common is the four encompassing vows of sentient beings are numberless or masses of creatures are without bounds. I or we vow to save them all. Anxiety and hate, delusive desire is inexhaustible, meaning suffering is, is boundless. I vow to break them, break them of those bonds. The Dharma gates are beyond measure. I vow to learn them all. Again, the entries, the sufficient means, the skillful means. And the Buddha way is unsurpassable. I vow to accomplish it or uh, embody it. So it's important here, Samantabhadra is known as, um, well, it's Pusin Pusa in Chinese. Is associated with action, right? Whereas Manjushri is associated with prana, or transcendent wisdom. He's known as the uh, the Buddha of great strength. That's the, the Pusen Pusa, right? His full name is longer than that. Him and his consort in Tibetan, Samantabhadra and Samantabhadri, right? Two aspects. And he embodies this uh, practice and meditation. He's the patron of the Lotus Sutra, which I'm going to mention later when I talk about the Jindai, um teachings. Right? So it's this vow, uh, you know, as it's usually taught to achieve enlightenment, but with your ultimate goal to stay among uh, the suffering, to help lead them to liberation as well. Keeping in mind what we've discussed, that it was difficult for even a fully enlightened being to not just lead others to this freedom, but to even consider whether it was possible to teach this uh, 
this uh, prescription. Right? So we're looking at a bodhicitta, which is the enlightened mind. Right? And in definition, they say it's to strive. Uh, it's the mind that strives towards awakening of empathy, empathy, compassion for the benefit of all sentient beings. But it just simply breaks down as bodhi, which is awakening or enlightenment or right thought, right mind. And citta, which is a word that is commonly used um, in the Abhidharma to represent um, what we consider mind or the self. But simply what it is, is to differentiate between what we consider to be mind and these birth and death of these thoughts. right? Because if you break down citta to chit, which is simply consciousness and go backwards from that right it refers to um, to understand or to comprehend to be aware of so it's not something that exists it's this volition this conditional based reality right but what's interesting is the Sanskrit word means awareness or consciousness true awareness Again, it breaks back down to this bodhicitta, this great mind, right? Down back to the bodhisattva. Well, we've talked about bodhisattva, that it's commonly used to denote someone who's achieved this enlightenment, but no, it's part of this, where the bodhisattva is this great being embodying this enlightened path this path towards enlightenment or what have you. And I'll read, it's a vow taken by Mahayana Buddhists to liberate all sentient beings, one who has taken the vow normally known as a bodhisattva. Right? So the bodhicitta is the mind towards enlightenment. Again, I'm going to hit on this over and over again, shraddha, which is faith and commitment in everything we do, right? guided by the Noble Eightfold um, Path. So this goes on and says this can be done by venerating all the Buddhas and by cultivating supreme moral and spiritual perfection. Right? It's to be placed, uh, to be placed in the service of others. Right. So it's embodying the the oneness idea, the uh, equanimity or shunyata, the emptiness. Uh, if we're all empty of uh, the self, therefore we're no different. So it's this oneness idea, and it goes on. In particular, bodhisattvas promise to practice the six perfections, right? Uh, of giving, moral discipline, patience, effort, concentration, and wisdom in order to fulfill this body, bodhicitta, aim of attaining enlightenment for the sake of all beings. So we'll break this down further. Right? The paramitas are dana, generosity, or giving of oneself, right? Again, so it boils back down to the Four Noble Truths. Our life is suffering. There is a cause that causes our own selfish ego, which is the one side of our mind, our conditional mind. So giving of oneself or minimizing the self, putting others before you, generosity or giving of oneself, dana. Sila is virtue, morality, discipline, proper conduct. Again, this Noble Eightfold Path it's a prescription, but it's just a simple truth of being the best you can be is not only the goal, but the path and the destination 
It's to reside in that, that patana, the sati patana, to reside in that truth, that, that action, that, you know, where you eliminate the cause and the effect because you have, you know, preempted by not allowing the birth of those chittas, which are the cause. It goes on and talks about kshanti. Kshanti is patience, tolerance, forbearance, acceptance, endurance. But again, we've talked about this importance of an understanding of these more complex definitions that shraddha can't be compared to a Western concept of faith because if you look at Kierkegaard, this faith is almost lost the commitment, the the cons- the concerted effort, right? As we talked about, um, that you must look upon it with passionate or dispassionate um, uh, effort, right? Intense, intense, dispassionate um, observation. Goes on and talks about vrigya. Virgia, which is energy, vigilance, vigor, effort. It's what I just said, right? They all are a package. You can't pull one and say, well, hey, let's do some meta meditation. It's because today we're just going to switch it up. Same as it's not sitting, it's not walking, it's sitting, it's walking, it's neither, it's both. It goes on and says dhyana, right? Separately, we have the dhyana paramita, the perfection of Focus, concentration, or we've learned this before, the root being to train the mind. But in this case, jhana translated one-pointed concentration, contemplation, right? Be it sati, on mindfulness, anapana, the breath. Then it goes on and says the prana, paramito, which is wisdom or insight, right? Wisdom or insight is one of the perfections. And it, it tends to go on sometimes and talk about some of the ones we've talked about. Upaya, which is skillful means. That's your effort, again, proper effort. And it talks about your vow, your resolution, your aspiration, your determination. Pranadana. Same idea that we've been talking about. And then spiritual bawa. Bala is just what we talked about before, these extraordinary powers that actually just come from simply practicing what we know we should. And lastly, the tenth, it's jnana, jnana, knowledge. Again, this is why we've mentioned this the six, because um, some of them can be put together, right? Skillful means could be considered right energy, right diligence, right? When you uh, fix your point of concentration, Skillful means, right? Having virtue, discipline, sila, that is, right? Both spiritual power, bala, and, you know, your determination, the pranadana. Right? What do I mean by this? Because if you find yourself um, wavering, there are guidance, right? So, I'll finish the Bodhisattva vow, where it talks about, you use these perfections to guide your actions, to hopefully achieve this 
perfect mind and an enlightenment for all beings. But it depends on what I'm going to read here. It said, in Tibetan Buddhism, there are two lineages of the Bodhisattva vow, which is the same, actually, what it mentions before. That's why I didn't finish reading um, the remainder. Two lineages first associated is the Chittamatra movement of Indian Buddhism, uh, which is said to have originated with the Bodhisattva Maitreya, right? And uh, propagated by Asanga. And the second is associated with the Madhyamaka movement. Again, we've taught both, right? Chittamatra is the mind-only school. Madhyamaka is the middle way. The Madhyamaka movement is said to have originated with the Bodhisattva Manjusri, right? We've talked about them earlier with Samantabhadra, Avilokitesvara, and Manjusri. Maitreya being um, the tutor to Shakyamuni and Manjusri being... Um, the Buddha of uh, wisdom, right? So you have your wisdom, your compassion, uh, your great effort or work, skills in means, uh, practice and meditation, and then finally you have Maitreya, right? Which is your great example. Right? So even a great Buddha required um, an even greater Buddha for an example, right? Why? Because here, according to Alexander Berzin, which you had recognized, you get on and read, because he seems to provide most of his work free of charge online. Sadly, he's also guilty of the unknowns. But he says the Bodhisattva vows transmitted in the 10th century by an Indian master, Atisha, uh, it comes from an Akashagarbha sutra, and it was cited and compiled by Shantideva. We've mentioned them, right? including 18 primary and 48 secondary downfalls. So as I said, I was finding myself wondering, can this be balanced? Now there's multiple definitions to this bodhisattva, bodhicitta. But again, what I meant was devoting yourself not for what they tend to accuse the Theravadin tradition for, a selfish goal of enlightenment for oneself. You have a goal for enlightenment um, to help all sentient beings. For me, I kept it simpler and said to myself, I didn't really see myself achieving enlightenment in this particular lifetime, but I would still say that what I was seeing in the way I was seeing it would be um, I would achieve enlightenment, right? Which, which my goal, let me back up a bit. My goal was to achieve enlightenment, um, but the vow for me, the bodhicitta vow, the bodhisattva vow for me was that upon enlightenment, I vowed to remain, Right? As I've said multiple times before, but one of the most difficult things to do is to remain, right? Risking not only one's um, awareness, right? Um, by being tempted by samsara, right? But also, they say it's difficult being around um, these suffering beings. The Dharmakaya itself is a risk, 
to even an enlightened being. As I said, even an enlightened being needed not just a mentor, but the mentor needed a mentor. Right? So, what am I talking about? I actually went and looked for an answer to this question, whether Bodhicitta or the Bodhisattva vow can um, be taken and still achieve self-actualization. Right? Because for me, the idea is to be compassionate for all beings is being, once again, rooted in samsara, but more importantly, just how horrible most people can be to themselves and others is enough to, once again, yank you out of this. Just like I spoke, that a mantra is designed to tie up the mind, not to reinforce, um, you know, the kleshes. Right? Oh, geez, no, I don't know how if I pronounce that right or if he's pronouncing it right or, you know, is he stepping right? Did I start with my left foot or my right foot? No. So I go and I go and I look and I find this is not an uncommon issue with practitioners. In fact, they say, and I go on here, the second of the Bodhisattva vows is associated with the Madhyamaka movement. It is said to have originated with the Bodhisattva Manjusri, again, this great Buddha of wisdom. And it was propagated by Nagarjuna. We've heard about Nagarjuna, later by Shantideva. The main differences between the two lineages of the Bodhisattva vow is that the Chittamatra uh, lineage of the vow cannot be received by, the, by one who has not previously received the Pratamoksha vows. It's the Pratamoksha vows. It's simply, it's, um, it's taking the vows of, for a lay person, to refrain from killing, from stealing, from false speech, sexual misconduct, or using intoxications. And for um, a monastic, it goes further, obviously. But you can go and take, there's different levels of these promises you can take. And there's usually uh, eight vows, even, if you wanted to, to go a little further. And a total of, sadly, 253 for a bhikshu. And 364 for a bhikshuni. So more, more, uh, more rules for the ladies. But I always had this confusion that, hey, these cowards of the Theravadan tradition, they're just selfishly looking for self-liberation. Look at these cowardly monks and nuns running off to their cloisters to avoid uh, the clashes that the rest of us must deal with, these distractions and confusions. But how might we carry on, as I said in the Gita, uh, Krishna told Arjuna that better than jnana yoga, wisdom yoga, was karma yoga, the action, right? Take it out into the world. And again, so I did my research and lo and behold, I found out I'm not alone in having this issue with the bodhicitta vow. And I'll read you the 18 primary root downfalls of the bodhisattva vow. Why someone might va waver. One, praising ourselves or belittling others. Oh, I'm guilty of that. Are we not all? Right? Don't, don't, uh, as the uh, Kipling poem says, don't think yourself too wise or talk too, too fancy. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Uh, second, it says not sharing the Dharma teachings or wealth. I mean, it'll explain it a little bit later. It's just being greedy, right? Or doling out 
uh, insufficiency so that they have to rely on you or not, I'm going to get to this later, not allowing others to follow their own path. Three, it's not listening to others' apologies or striking others. Again, this has to do with compassion, has to do with, you know, simple things. Four, it says dis discarding the Mahayana teachings and propounding made-up ones. We know a few traditions that they're just making this stuff up. Five, taking offerings intended for the triple gem. Well, there you go. And Dana, if you're given something to propagate, don't be going out and buying yourself a car with it. Six, forsaking the holy dharma, right? Forsaking the truth of the teachings or the practice. Seven, disrobing a monastic or committing such acts as stealing their robes. That's a little obscure and weird, but okay. Eight, is committing any of the five heinous crimes. This is interesting, because killing our fathers, our mothers, killing an arhat or a liberated being, remember... If someone's achieved this, it may have taken many lifetimes, so that's why it's much more uh, heinous. I like that word. D is with bad intentions drawing blood from a Buddha. It would be fine, I guess, to accidentally draw blood. E is causing a split in the monastic community. I mean, our, we ourselves have witnessed this uh, happen without any shame or mercy goes on and says, nine, holding a distorted antagonistic outlook, right? So this is this right intention, right view, right effort, right action, right? Because it's not just having a distorted view, right? But antagonistic outlook, right? We all know. Being positive does help. goes on and says, ten, is destroying places such as towns. Well, that's, again, could be lost in translations, and this simply just means destroying a community, right? Arguably, uh, say, for example, the community was happy and they were worshipping in their way, right? Uh, the Dalai Lama has given a story that, um, a previous Dalai Lama told a story that there was this woman in the village that was followed around by a good cloud, say, for example, and it was found out because she, she had such a, um, what would you call it, you know, beneficial aura. Things just went right for her. Um, the reason was she, she always walked around and she uh, repeated a mantra over and over, very devoutly. Uh, what ended up happening is if, uh, you know, they wanted to find out, like, what are you doing? Turns out the, the lady was repeating the mantra wrong. What did the Dalai Lama say? No, correct her and say you're doing... No, well, the story goes that they did correct her and she was no longer followed by this cloud of uh, merit. And so the Dalai Lama told her to go back, to revert to her arguably misspoken, mis... But we've learned the mantra is not to say the words... The mantra is not about the words. The mantra is about tying up the mind so you can see past that. So that's why I say, number 10, destroying places such as towns can be any beneficial community or group. goes on 11, says, teaching voidness to those whose minds are untrained. Yes, this idea 
of nothingness, uh, no self, that to a lot of people can be quite harmful, right? Just like, honestly, uh, as mentioned in the podcast recently, uh, they mentioned that it can be difficult for some people to imagine, um, you know, life without this uh, construct we call self. And the list goes on to 12, turning others away from full enlightenment. Again, discourage anyone at all in the practice. 13, turning others away from their pratamoksha vows. Again, as I said, this is the Vinaya tradition, the monastic tradition we're actually going to talk about in another podcast. I find this interesting because 14 says belittling the shravaka vehicle. This is the individual pursuit. This is somebody who can achieve enlightenment simply by hearing the Buddha. Not different from the Pachaka, Pratyaka Buddha path. Again, this is one of the reasons that someone might not be able to uh, sustain the Bodhicitta vow. Is again, don't belittle someone because their path is different than one uh, that you follow. It goes on in 15, proclaiming false realization of voidness. This is very important, right? This kind of differentiates between enlightenment as a full and complete experience, the parasamgate, you're on the other side, resident on the other side, away from this, um, all the skandhas. So proclaiming a false realization of, of voidness is both Understanding that um, this realization, I remember we've talked about satori, is a great word to use. Because it doesn't denote a permanent experience, it denotes a very temporary one. right? So you don't want to be talking about how you understand this, because it's not about this. right? It's about for you. So as soon as you start talking about, hey, look at me, you've missed the point. 16 goes on and says, accepting what has been stolen from the triple gem. Again, this is just simply an intention. 17, establishing unfair policies. That's the middle way idea. And 18, just simply giving up the bodhicitta. I can speak for it for myself. It is easy to do, and I have done it. And it's not beneficial. Break it down. Bodhi, as I said, simply means right enlightenment, but that can be uh, misleading awakening is better right achieving this knowledge due to a practice of jhana prana right I've mentioned using this right so it goes on and talks about right like I said these 18 actions if committed is a root downfall there's also an additional 46 types of faulty behavior. That's why it says it's a vow with subtle, invisible form. It's a mental continuum. Right? It's a restraint from uncommendable action. That's this negation again. It's tough. But when everything in our world is based on comparisons, that's that duality, it's tough not to use negation, right? Oops. So there's different stages, right? So it starts with truly 
not just stating the obvious, but more importantly, you must merely wish to become a Buddha for the benefits of others. Right? Again, it's not about the others. It's about your goal to achieve awakening. First, but not for yourself, for all. Again, the truth of equanimity, uh, dependent nature falls into this, emptiness, makes it a little easier to understand, especially when it flows from the Chittimatra and Madhyamakan um, tradition, because it's mind only. Therefore, all sentient beings are within me, same as when I mentioned Samantabhadra and Samantabhadri. Right? When they're in their yab-yum configuration, they are one. And we learned this from the Bardo Thadul, the Tibetan Book of Liberation, Natural Liberation in the Between States. We've learned that they actually flow from within um, oneself. Right? So it talks about you must continue to make that uh, wish, that pledge, Right? to achieve this awakening for the benefit of others, and secondly, pledge to never abandon this aim until it's achieved. Why? I didn't realize. Here I am being selfish and egotistical, uh, egotistical again, forgetting that I'm no different than everybody else. Of course this is a difficult path to remain on. And it talks about that every night you must reaffirm this two and even three times. Right? That's why it says both aspiring to and then engaged. Engaged is when it becomes most difficult. And that's why we must remember. Okay, there's four bindings. Don't regard the negative action as detrimental. Right? Not regarding, right? Sorry. Not regarding negative action as detrimental, seeing only advantages to it and undertaking the action with no regrets. This is this multi-stage of uh, understanding. So you can make um, the sincere vow of liberation for oneself, for others, but you can still uh, be subject to these negative actions and even not admitting how detrimental they are. Second of the four factors binding you to this failing, repeated uh, um, habit, second is having been in the habit of committing this transgression before and having no wish or intention to refrain now or in the future from repeating it. Again, you can understand that taking a life is bad, but if you understand that uh, not having confidence in oneself is just as bad, right? That's the true teaching. Third, delighting in negative action and undertaking it with joy. How many times have we seen ourselves being guilty of the same. And lastly, having no moral self-dignity. I love this, right? Because it's an actual standalone term in Tibetan. It means no sense of honor, right? So having no moral self-dignity dignity, and no care for how our actions reflect on others. Again, another sense. Um, Krellment in Tibetan now they've translated it as no sense of face that's very Chinese-like, right? It's just the idea of equanimity makes it understood better, right? Understanding that it's not just self-dignity, it's us-dignity, right? Understanding that cause and effect kind of missed in this um, translation. And it goes on, it says, such 
as our teachers, parents, and thus having no intention of repairing the damage we're doing to ourselves. Again, kind of a missense. The ego is so guilty of this, thinking that we are different from others. No, the idea is simply to understand that you, until you're able to see the difference between self and others, then there is these two senses, uh, two ideas of self-dignity and how our actions reflect on others. But the true teaching is that equanimity means there is no difference one to the other, right? Uh, all right, so, well, rather than be negative, we'll go back to the six perfections, paramitas, and we'll say, so you need to restrain from the 46 faulty actions. And how do you do that? Simply by um, encouraging not just the paramitas, the six perfections, but also the boundless energies. But we'll get to that in a moment. So the six far-reaching attitudes, as they say, because they also say, like I said, boundless energies. They love these um, terms like oceans of wisdom. But the six far-reaching attitudes or paramitas or perfections or proper conduct are generosity. That's that Danny we talked about. Ethical self-discipline, right? Not simply self-discipline. You must have a balance. Selfless without um, being at one's own expense. Third, patience. Oh, infinitely important where we many of us fail. Perseverance. Once again, we're talking about what we mentioned. Five is mental stability, commonly concentration, that one-pointedness of mind. And six, discriminating awareness, wisdom. Wisdom, right? Discrimination, awareness, and wisdom. I love they're all put together, right? They're all a little bit different. That's why we use them together. Uh, it is pretty important that we use them uh, for English. All right, so I'm just reading from, uh, this is uh, The Ethical Discipline of Bodhisattvas, Geshe Sonam Rinjin. He's reading one little segment here where he mentions, mentions m multiple areas um, that a, a Bodhisattva will train in to accumulate the virtue necessary for the goal. He mentions one of the most important ones first, strengthening our practice of the three kinds of training. In ethical discipline, concentration, and wisdom. And he says, developing the three kinds of understanding derived from hearing, thinking, and meditating. This creates virtue. Based on restraint from harmful conduct, that's the negative again, right? Which is the basis of all ethical discipline. We gain understanding derived from listening to teachings and sutras, commentaries dealing with the Bodhisattva's way of life. This leads to an understanding derived from thinking, gained certainty about what we have learned. The next step is development of calm abiding and special insight, which respectively constitute the training in meditative, meditative stabilization and the training in wisdom. I apologize, I don't remember it being such an awkward um, paragraph. But anyways, our training arguably are of two Areas So ethical discipline, absolutely. That's our everyday action. Because he goes on and talks about secluding oneself from a busy life. Yeah, you really can't because you're going to have trouble even within the monastic community. 
So ethical discipline is your acts from a day-to-day basis. Concentration is what he was talking about in the end here. Right? This calm abiding, that's the shamatha, and special insight is another commonly used English translation of the Tibetan uh, translation of vipassana, or insight practice. And it says they constitute the training in meditative stabilization. That's that concentration, dhyana, and training in wisdom. Again, the goal is to achieve this wisdom, prana. It's an understanding, right? So, I guess that's probably where uh, where I leave it. Is it boils right back down to the exact same thing, right? So the goal is to continue to test us. Here I'm constantly putting out podcasts talking about how, oh, most people go and they sit on a, uh, a pillow because they can't handle to carry it throughout life, right? And here I am whining about not being able to sustain bodhicitta as if I'm the only person that uh, suffers when he looks at how horrible people can be to themselves and others, Right? Never once putting in, right? I have the wish to become enlightened for all sentient beings. But where was my shraddha? Both faith and commitment. And in this case, it's simply in everything you do, right? Because again, this list of negative uh, actions can be read as a positive, right? So praising ourselves and belittling others is a negative thing. We should be praising others and not belittling ourselves. Two is not sharing Dharma teachers or wealth. Well, if you have wealth, meaning meaning in excess of anything, you absolutely be sharing it because this is the truth of humanity, right? The middle way is not insufficiency and not excess. Not sharing the Dharma teachings, not sharing the truth of things, not being who you are meant to be, a compassionate being. Three, not listening to others' apologies or striking others. That's, that's not acceptance. That's attachment to negative things, right? You're not attaching to their, their sincere apology or even the healing that can come by you just accepting whatever is given, right? Not striking others. Why should you externalize your own suffering? Why should you apply additional suffering to others? Always be lifting others up. Right? And it goes on from there, right? So the truth is simply don't be a jerk. <laughs>